Hello everybody and welcome to my reading of uh, Rolo Tomasi's Rational Mail and um, this was the first uh, book that I bought and read and um, yeah pretty eye-opening it is and um, so uh, without further ado introduction in January of 2001 I was entering a state university for the first time in my life at the ripe age of 32 my relatively late life enrolment was the result of what I believed then was a misspent youth and I was atoning for the indiscretions of what I call my rock star twenties. I had a lot of catching up to do thanks to the decisions I'd made in my early and mid twenties and a sense of incompleteness I felt at that time. In hindsight, I'm glad I did return to school. Better late than never. Because I was learning the intrinsic value of an education. I can remember listening to the grumblings of guys in my class who were ten years my younger saying what the hell do I need to learn this shit for? It won't help me in the job I'm studying for. I suppose I might have felt the same way at 22 if I hadn't been more concerned with playing the next gig in the next band I was in on a weekend in Hollywood. I could never have appreciated the value of being an educated person, while a good job is definitely a concrete goal of bettering oneself. Being educated on a great many subjects and learning how to learn is its own reward. Although I didn't attend a liberal arts university per se, my degree is in fine art. However, after having worked in design, advertising, marketing and branding throughout my professional life, I knew that my minor, if later a double major, had to be in psychology. My initial interest in psychology was due to the want of a better understanding of the often difficult personalities I was forced to deal with in my career. So personality studies and behaviourism was a natural fit for me. Much of what I have compiled in this book is the direct result of over a decade of applying these schools of psychology to the gender dynamics I've experienced personally as well as the collective experiences of millions of men around the world. Connecting Dots while I was studying psychology, I felt a natural attraction towards behaviourism. Like most people, I was 
peripherally familiar with the more touchy-feely branches of psychology, like psychoanalysis and the sit-down on the couch. Let's talk about feelings, applications most people associate with psychology. Behaviourism was a much more concrete approach. One based on behaviours and the motivators for them. One of the primary foundations of game awareness is basing your estimation of a woman upon her actions and behaviours rather than her words or implied intents. This principle is founded in in behaviourism cardinal principle. Behaviour is the only reliable evidence of motivation. Even motivations not consciously recognised by the actor can influence behaviour regardless of consciously rationalised motive. In other words, sometimes we don't realise why we're hypocrites or saints, as the case may be. Coming to terms with this behavioural foundation was the first dot I connected between hard psychology and intergender dynamics. For roughly a year or two before I enrolled, I'd been actively posting on a few online forums attempting to help some young men with their girl problems. Initially, these forums weren't in any way related to what would later become the community or game-oriented in nature. I'd heard of the early pickup artists like Mystery and a few others, but they weren't promoting anything I hadn't already known for my more libertine rock star 20s. I was more interested in helping these guys not make mistakes for much of the same reasons with women that I had. However, I just couldn't shape a feeling that there was a distinct connection between what these guys were going through, what the PUAs of the time were advocating, and the behavioural psychology I was becoming more and more saturated in. The average beta guys who were agonising over their girlfriend's problems and the behavioural basis upon which PUA techniques were founded on had a common root in psychology. About this time I had joined the online community at sosuave.com. This forum would become my testing ground for connecting the dots I was beginning to become aware of. I should say that I did make an effort to propose that intergender relations were based in sometimes harsh behaviourism with colleagues and teachers. I was kind of taken aback more often than not when the same teachers who were promoting behavioural psychology as a hard science were the most outspoken critics of what I was bringing to light for them. I couldn't understand then what possibly prevent them from connecting the dots and coming to the uncomfortable conclusions 
I was making. I now know, and you will too, by the end of this book, that at the time I hadn't figured out the influence the feminine imperative and the romantic idealism had on their willingness to accept what I was proposing in spite of their adherence to hard behaviourism. My inquiries are, and hashing out theories and ideas would have to be done on a forum where I could look for input or maybe find that other men had concept I hadn't considered in, meet, in a meeting place of similar ideas. So smart, so suave was that forum for me. For well over 12 years, most of the concepts you will read in this book are the result of over a decade of debate, critical inquiry and refinement. However, in most cases, I still encourage their questioning and none are unmodifiable or of further refinement. What you're about to read are ref a refinement of the core ideas and concepts I formalised on my blog, therationalmail.com. I began The Rational Mail at the request of my readers on various men's forums and comments on blogs in the Manosphere in 2011. After the popularity of the blog exploded inside a year, it became apparent that a book form of the basic principles was needed for new readers. As I moved past them and built upon the prior concepts, for the most part I've rewritten and edited for publishing the blog posts of the first year at Rational Mail. I've left in most of the jingoisms and acronyms that are characteristics of the blog. For instance, SMV is sexual market value and are commonly used in the manosphere. However, I've made every attempt to define them as I go along. Furthermore, many of the concepts I explore in the book came from a question by one of my readers. As with most commenters, their anonymity is assumed in the form of their online handle. The important thing to remember is the concept being discussed and not so much the importance of who is proposing or contradicting as a concept. Before you begin reading, the primary reason I decided to codify the rational mail into a book came from a reader by the name of Jackie. Jackie was an older married woman who generally took what I proposed about intergender dynamics on Rational Mail. Jackie wasn't exactly a typical reader for me, but she asked me to help her understand some concepts better so she could help her son who was about to marry a woman whom she knew would be detrimental to his life. Jackie said, I wish you had a book out with all of the stuff in it so I could give it to him. He's very beta and whipped, but if I had a book to put in his hand, he would read it. So it is for the sons of Jackie's that I decided to put this book out. And it is in this spirit that I'll ask you, the reader, to clear your head 
with a few things before you begin to digest of it any of it. The Rational Mail literally has millions of readers worldwide, so there's a strong likelihood you bought this book to keep on a shelf and loan to friends, because you're already familiar with its concepts. There is a certain power and legitimacy, legitimacy that the printed word has that a blog or some online on article lacks. So if you already are a Rational Mail reader, be sure you do loan the book out or encourage the plugged in to read and discuss it. If you are picking this book up for the first time or had it handed to you by a friend or loved one and never heard of the Rational Mail or the Manosphere or have had any exposure to the ideas I put forth here, I humbly ask that you read with an open mind. That sounds like an easy cop-out. Open your mind. It kind of sounds like something a religious cult would preface their literature with. We all like to think we all like to think we already have open minds. We're all perfectly rational and perfectly capable of critical thinking. I ask you to clear your head of preconceptions you have of gender because what you're about to read here are very radical concepts. Concepts that will challenge your perspective on women, men, how they interact with each other, how social structures evolve around those relations. You will violently disagree with some of these concepts and others will give you that aha moment of realization. Some of these concepts were great on the investment your ego as in certain beliefs about how men and women ought to relate with each other, while others will validate exactly the experiences you may have personally with them. Some are ugly, some are not complimentary of women and some of men. You'll think I'm misogynist on first glance because it's the default response you've been taught to react with. For others, you might feel some kind of vindication for getting burned by your ex and realising what was at play when it happened. I realise it's a tall order, but strive not to let your personal feelings colour what out I lay out for you here. You'll love me and you'll hate me. You'll think, well, not in my case, and here's why. Or you'll think, well, this is some really groundbreaking stuff. I'm not a psychologist or a PUA, or a men's rights activist, or a motivation speaker. I'm just a guy who connected some dots. Why do I, my eyes hurt? You've never used them before. And uh, normally I just do one chapter per reading, but uh, I want to go straight into this uh, get to get through the uh, content. Um, this next chapter is the basics. The soulmate myth. There is no one. 
one-itis, an unhealthy romantic obsession with a single person, usually accompanied by unreciprocated affection and completely unrealistic idealisation of the said person. One-itis is paralysis. You cease to mature, you cease to move, you cease to be you. There is no one. This is the soulmate myth. There are some good ones and some bad ones, but there is no one. Anyone telling you anything else is selling you something. There are lots of special someones out there for you. Just ask the divorced, widowed person who's remarried after their soulmate has died or moved on with another person. They insist is their real soulmate. This is what trips people up about the soulmate myth. It is this fantasy that we all at least in some way share, an idealisation of, that there is one perfect mate for each of us. And it's soon as the planets align and fate takes its course, we'll know that we are intended for each other. While this makes for a gratifying romantic comedy plot, it's hardly a realistic way to plan your life. In fact, it's usually paralysing. What I find even more fascinating is how common the idea is and particularly for guys, that a nuts and bolts view of life should be trumped by this fantasy in the area of intersection relationships. Men who would otherwise recognise the value of understanding psychology, biology, sociology, evolution, business, engineering, etc. Men with a concrete awareness of the interplay we see these aspects take place in our lives on a daily basis. Are some of the first guys to become violently opposed to the idea that maybe there isn't someone for everyone, or that there are a lot more ones out there that could meet or exceed the criteria we subconsciously set for them to be the one? I think it comes off as an nihilistic or this dread that maybe their ego investment in this belief is false. It's like saying God is dead to the deeply religious. It's just too terrible to contemplate that there may be no one or there may be several ones to spend their lives with. This western romanticised mythology is based on the premise that there is only one perfect mate for any single individual. And as much as a lifetime can and should be spent in constant search of this soulmate, so strong and so pervasive is this myth in our collective consciousness that it has become akin to a religious statement and in fact has been integrated into so, so many religious doctrines as the feminization of Western culture has spread. 
I think there's been a mischaracterization of one-itis. It's necessary to differentiate between a healthy relationship based on mutual affinity and respect and a lopsided one-itis based relationship. I've had more than a few guys seeking my advice or challenging my take on one-itis, essentially asking me for permission to accept one-itis as legitimate monogamy. But Rolo, it's got to be okay for a guy to have one-itis for his wife or girlfriend. After all, she's the one for him, right? In my estimation, one-itis is an unhealthy psychological dependency that is the direct result of the continuous socialisation of the soulmate myth in our collective consciousness. What truly, what's truly frightening is that one-itis has become associated with being a healthy, normative aspect of a long-term relationship or marriage. I come to the conclusion that one-itis is based on sociological roots, not only due to it being a statement of personal belief, but the degree to which this ideology is disseminated and mass-marketed in popular culture through media, music, literature, movies, etc., Dating services like eHarmony shamelessly marketeer and exploit exactly the insecurities that this dynamic engenders in people desperately searching for the one they were intended for. The idea that men possess a natural capacity for protection, provisioning and semi-monogamy has merit from both a social and biopsychological standpoint. But a one-itis psychosis is not a byproduct of it. Rather, I would set it apart from the health, this healthy protector provider dynamic, since one-itis essentially sabotages what our natural propensities would, would otherwise filter. One-itis is insecurity run amok while a person is single and potentially paralysing when coupled with the object of that one-itis in a long-term relationship. The same neurotic desperation that drives a person to settle for their one, whether healthy or unhealthy, is the same insecurity that paralyses them from abandoning and damaging a damaging relationship. This is their one. And how could they ever live without them? Or they're my one, but all I need do is fix myself or fix them to have my idealised relationship. This idealisation of a relationship is at the root of one-itis, with such a limiting all-or-nothing binary approach to searching for one needle in the haystack and investing emotional effort over the course of a lifetime, how do we mature into healthy understanding of what rela that relationship should really entail? The very Pollyanna idealised relationship, the happy ever after. That belief in a one promotes as an ultimate end 
is thwarted and contradicted by the costs of the constant pursuit of the one for which they'll settle for. After the better part of a lifetime is invested in this ideology, how much more difficult will it be to come to the realisation that the person that they're with isn't their one? To what extent will a person go to in order to protect a lifetime of this ego investment? At some point in a one-itis relationship, one participant will establish dominance based on the powerlessness that this one-itis necessitates. There is no greater agency for a woman than to know beyond doubt that she is the only source of a man's need for sex and intimacy. A one-itis mindset only cements this into the understanding of both parties. For a man who believes that the emotionally and psychologically damaging relationship he has ego invested himself in, with the only person in his lifetime he's ever going to be compatible with. There is nothing more paralysing in this maturation. The same, of course, holds true for women. And this is why we shake our heads when we see an exceptionally beautiful woman go chasing back to her abusive and different jerk boyfriend because she believes he is her one and the only source of her security available to her. Hypergamy may be her root imperatives for sticking with him, but it's the soulmate myth, the fear of the one that got away that makes for an emotional or a spiritual investment. The definition of power is not financial success, status or influence over others, but the degree to which we have control over our own lives. I'm going to read that bit again. The definition of power is not financial success, status or influence over others, but the degree to which we have control over our own lives. Subscribing to the soulmate myth mythology necessitates that we recognise powerlessness in this arena of our lives. Better, I think it would be to foster a healthy understanding that there is no one. There are some good ones, some bad ones, but there is no one. Religion of the Soulmate What you've just read was one of my earliest posts back on the Soswar forum from around 2003 and 4. I was finishing my degree then and had the fallacy of the one graphically illustrated for me in the psychology class one day. I was in class surrounded by mostly much younger students than myself, all very astute and as intellectual as they come for mid-twenty-somethings. At what point the discussion had come around to religion. 
and much of the class expressed being agnostic or atheist or spiritual, but not religious. The rationale, of course, was that religion and belief could be explained as psychological. Fear of mortality constructs that were expanded into sociological dynamics. Later in that discussion, the idea of a soulmate come up. The professor didn't actually use the word soul, but rather couched the idea by asking for a show of hands as to how many, how many of the class believed that there was a special someone out there for them, or if they feared the one that got away. Damn near the entire class raised their hands. For all their rational empiricism, the appeals to the realism in regards to spirituality, they all unanimously ex expressed a quasi-karmic belief in connecting with another idealised person on an intimate level for a lifetime. Even the frat guys and the hook-up girls, who I knew weren't especially looking for anything long-term in their dating habits, still raised their hands in assent to a belief of the one. Some later explained what that one meant to them, and most had differing definitions of that idealisation. Some even admitted, admitted to it being an idealisation as the discussion progressed. Yet almost all of them still had what would otherwise be termed as an irrational belief in predestination or even amongst the least spiritual that is just part of life to pair off with someone significant and there was someone for everyone. This discussion was a catalyst for one of my awakening realisations. Despite all odds, people largely feel entitled to or deserving of an important love of their life. Statistically and pragmatically, this is ridiculous, but there is a, the feminised Disneyification of this core concept has been romanticised and commercialised to the point of becoming a religion. Even for the expressly non-religious, the Shakespearean longing for the one, the search for another soulmate who was destined to be our match, has been systematically distorted beyond all reason. And I'll elaborate later, men will take their own lives in the delusion of having lost their soulmate. Soulmate men. This perversion of the soulmate myth is attributable to a large part of the feminized social conventions we deal with today. The fear of isolation for, from our imagined soulmate or the fear of having irrecoverably lost that perfect one for us feels so much of the personal and social neuroses 
we find in contemporary matrix of our society. For example, much of the fear inherent in the myth of the lonely old man loses its teeth without a core belief in a soulmate myth. The fear of loss and the delusions of relational equity only really matter when the person men believe that equity should influence is their predestined one. The feminine imperative recognised the overwhelming power the soulmate myth had over men and women from the beginnings of its rise to our descendancy as the primary gender social imperative. Virtually, virtually all of the distortions of the core soulmate dynamic evolved as a controlling schema for men. When it is found, when it is soulmate women, who are the primary reward for a soulmate necessitous man, there are a lot of opportunities to, consol to consolidate that power upon. To be clear, don't think this is some fiendish plot of, so of a femme-centric cabal socially engineering that soulmate fear into men. Generations of men raised to be oblivious to it willingly and actively help perpetuate the soulmate myth. Soulmate women. Although hypergamy plays a large role in determining what makes for an idealised soulmate for women, they aren't immune to the exploitations of that core fear. Though it is more an unfortunate byproduct than an outright manipulation, I'd argue that in some ways hypergamy intensifies that neurosis. An alpha widow knows all too well the languishing associated with pining for the alpha that got away particularly when she's paired off long-term with a dutiful beta provider after her sexual market value declines. For women, the soulmate represents that nigh-unattainable combination of rousing alpha dominance matched with a loyal providership for her long-term security that only she can tame out of him. Hypergamy hates the soulmate principle because the soulmate is an absolute definition, whereas hypergamy must always test for perfection. Hypergamy asks, is he the one? Is he the one? And the soulmate myth replies, he has to be the one. He's your soulmate and there's only one of those. Building the mystery. Due to this core concept and soulmate mythology, both sexes will seek to perfect that idealisation for themselves, even under the least ideal of conditions and expressions. 
We want to build our intimate relations into that soulmate idealism in order to relieve the fear that and solve the problem and most times so badly that we'll definitely ignore the warnings, abuses and consequences of having done so. For women, the impact of the most significant alpha male is what initially defines that soulmate idealisation. For men, it may be the first woman to become sexual with him, or the one who best exemplifies a woman he mistakenly believes can love him in a male-defined orientation of love. However, these are the points of origin for building that soulmate ideal option. This ideal is then compounded upon with layers of investments in the hopes that this person might actually be the one fate has prescribed for them. Emotional investment, personal, financial, even life potential investments and sacrifices then follow in an effort to create a soulmate in the absence of an ideal one must be created from available resources. This process is why I say the soulmate myth is ridiculous. It's psychologically much more pragmatic to construct another person to fit that ideal than it will be to wait for fate to take its course. People subscribing to the myth would rather build a soulmate consequences be damned. So women will attempt to build a better beta or tame down an alpha while men will attempt to turn a whore into a housewife, or vice versa. One of the most bitter aftertastes of having awakened to the red pill truth is abandoning old paradigms for new. I've described this before as akin to killing an old friend, and one friend that needs killing is exactly this mythology. Disabusing yourself of this core fear is vital to fully unplugging yourself from the old paradigm because so much of femme-centric condi social conditioning is dependent on it. Dropping the soulmate myth isn't the nihilism a lot of people might have you believe it is. If anything, it will free you to have a better, healthier future relationship with someone who is genuinely important to you, a relationship based on genuine desire, mutual respect, complementary understanding of each other and love, rather than one based on fear of losing your one and only representation of contentment in this life. In any relationship, the person with the most power is the one who needs the other the least. That's uh, an interesting sentence there because that's exactly what uh, Esther Villar wrote as well. 
in this foundation of any relationship, not just intersexual ones, but family, business, etc. relationships as well. It is a dynamic that is always in effect for my own well-being and that of my families. I need my employer more than he needs me. I get up for work in the morning and I work for him. And while I am also a vital part of the uninterrupted continuous of his company and endeavours, he simply needs me less than I need him. Now I could win the lottery tomorrow, or he may decide to cut my pay or limit my benefits, or I may complete my master's degree and decide that I can do better than to keep myself yoked to his cart indefinitely, thereby through some condition, either initiated by myself or not, I am put into a position of needing him less than he needs me. At this point he is forced into a position of deciding how much I am worth to some his ambitions and either part ways with me or negotiate furtherance of our relationship. The same plays true for intersexual relationships. Whether you want to base your relationship on power or not isn't the issue. It's already in play from your first point of attraction. You are acceptable to her for meeting any number of criteria and she meets your own criteria as well. If this weren't the case, you simply would not initiate a mutual relationship. So that's the uh, first section. I'm going to stop there. It's quite a uh, uh, a long uh, blog already. This one um, and some really, really great, uh, interesting, and vital um, points made in this chapter. Um, you know the the one-itis myth. Um, and, you know, I think this is, as he says, it's, it's been, um, you know, conditioned into people's fabric of their body, I think, um, in society and films, music, this type of thing. Um, and, uh, I think it as he says, it's bad for both men and women. And for men, let's start with men. Um, you know, I think it's it's very bad for boys, men, um, because the chances are that they may not actually have had much interest from a female from off the bat. Um, and so it's very easy for a man or a male um, to settle just because of the fact that he's actually got some uh, sex or some um, intimacy or some interest from a female at all. Um, and those type of guys really do 
end up in a terrible position. And uh, I can honestly say I'm probably one of these guys. And uh, I'm making these readings to uh, let know guys out there that uh, there can be some very serious um, things happen if you have oneitis or if you have no um, or if you have a scarcity mentality that you sort of settle for the first girl that gives you any uh, affection or attention. And, you know, how many guys out there, how many young lads out there, um, you know, not had many girlfriends at all and will just settle? Um, and, you know, the red flags will be waving, probably, but because he comes from a scarcity, he will not recognise the red flags, will ignore those red flags, just so that he can have some, um, you know, some affection and attention. And I think boys are particularly prone to one-itis and I think they're particularly vulnerable because I actually do believe that boys don't actually get much affection in their lives. So that once they get some affection and, and some sexual gratification, they really do um, feel like they win the lottery and um, without even a cursory glance to what the downsides might be. You know, I don't think boys can grow up um, without very much affection at all and they won't have uh, possibly not much affection from their parents most times um, and so that you know they go out into the world probably uh, you know desperate for some affection and some love and they get into these relationships and get into all sorts of difficulties, real bad difficulties. Really bad difficulties. And we know, you know, if you listen to my other blog, um, my other blogs, you know, the red flags, um, you know, the, the um, the various issues uh, with females, um, the red flags, the family, the family, you know, issues she comes from, um, you know, um, she may be, uh, you know, very flirty, and very, um, you know, lax with who she sleeps around with. Um, all of these things, all of these red flags, um, you know, a lot of guys will completely miss these um, red flags. Um, you know, the, 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 the potential um, issues here are massive, really massive. Um, 
so it's very very important for young guys to take things very slowly a lot of us older men will say it's best to be celibate actually <laughs> which probably you know we look back at our lives as older men and we think to ourselves actually would it have been better if I had been celibate that's something for younger guys to think about seriously think about um, you know and there are these options now there's the sex dolls now which I've mentioned before um, you know so things are changing um, for the better and uh, I think actually with this uh, terrible economic uh, reality that's unfolding I think there's going to be a lot of females looking for a male and there's going to be a lot of men a lot of males a lot of young men getting into relationships which they should never have done because I have heard the coach Greg Adams I think said after the third sexual relationship is pretty much over she has no uh, uh, very little ability to pair bond um, or there'll be some sort of damage and I did say in the last uh, one of my last blogs that it's pretty much game over at an early age really with these girls you know they they've already had multiple partners um, you know and so they're not really going to make a special case of the uh, the men that they have relationships with because they've already had many and so it's just another one you know just another uh, male um, and the respect will be very very low that's the problem okay so be warned as a 58 year old man I am sitting here with very few options in life to actually make corrections and uh, so it's very important to not get to this age and look back at your life and think damn you know that wasn't such a good idea and then going on to women I think it's um, quite bad for them the one-itis as well because the the which he mentioned in the chapter um, this um, alpha widow syndrome um, and I think that is real I think the alpha widow is real and I've read that uh, women get imprinted by men a man and the, the most masculine man she can find is what she's after the most dominant one and that will be her yardstick So after she's had, you know, 
a relationship with this, you know, masculine man, dominant man, then the next man she meets, if he's not as masculine, she is going to downright disrespect, you know, because he'll be uh, perhaps weaker, perhaps, um, you know, a beta, as we say, and the disrespect will be off the scale. And she will always pine after this man that she had. And I think at that point, girls can go through multiple, multiple relationships trying to find, you know, the guy that matches up to that guy that they had. And again, get themselves into some problems, really. Um, I think eventually, of course, they want to settle because they want to have children and they settle with a beta um, and, you know, the respect and, and you know, the, the disrespect that that beta has to suffer is quite awful, awful, you know, on a daily basis, the disrespect. So guys, I hope you've uh, learnt something from this. Already we're into some very deep waters here with this book and I uh, hope you've enjoyed the reading and I shall look forward to the next chapter. And don't forget guys, stay safe. Look after your own well-being and listen to the next chapter. All the best and bye for now. This is the Self Preservation Society. This is the Self Preservation Society. Go wash your German vegetable rice too. Cut your bonnet fair, we got a lot to do. Put on your dicky dirt and your pick and ride. Cause time to hurry and buy. Get your snakes on, mate. Get your skates on, mate. No fib around your Gregory Peck today. Aye, from your place of meat. Right upon the sink. This is the Self-Preservation Society. This is the Self-Preservation Society. Gotta get a moving. Move on. Jump in the jump, you're telling it straight. Tally up, mate. It's gonna be like a challenge.